So, good afternoon for our last session. And this will be responding to questions with clarification and so on. Generally speaking, I try to be very precise with words. I try to use them very carefully. And sometimes I fail. Sometimes I slip and do not live up to my own standards. And when I refer to people who have severe dementia, for example, I think I said not fully human. That's not correct. It's just not correct. They're 100% human. I'm 100% human. Every human. You can't be 30% or 95%, either human or not. But of course, in the Buddhist context, saying human, yeah, but that's just one of many species, and every, every sentient being is to be cherished. But that's incorrect. But what I meant to say, and I didn't use my word, choose my words carefully, it's better than you. Thank you. What I meant to say, and didn't find the right words, is that, and I'm going to give a really, a really crummy analogy, a tractor. A tractor and human beings very different, right? But a tractor with a broken carburetor or a rusted engine or a broken axle is not part tricycle and part tractor. or part, It's 100% tractor, but it's a broken tractor but it's still not anything other than a tractor, and it could be fixed. And so a person who has had severe brain damage, or Alzheimer's senile dementia, or any other especially impairment to the brain, is 100% human, but cannot, as, and Eva's really said it already, but cannot fully function as a human being. And this is why in classic Tibetan Buddhism, but it traces back to the teachings of the Buddha himself, among the eight leisures, the ten endowments, Jorwa, Jorwa, Chudawa, eight leisures, one of the leisures, uh, or is it freedom? I can't even remember, but I know it's there, not suffering from severe impediment, because then you can't really listen to Dharma, you can't understand Dharma, you can't practice Dharma, because the mind is just, if you're schizophrenic, it's very hard to practice Dharma. That's not saying they're less human, or certainly not saying they're less worthy of our compassion or love, but it's very hard to practice Dharma if you're suffering from severe Alzheimer's and so forth. So that's what I really meant to say. You are worthy of as much compassion and love as care as anybody else, 100% human, but you can't fully function. You can't do all that you could otherwise do if your brain, for example, were intact and healthy. You know, just as a side point, as I was listening to Eva, which I found quite riveting, but it just struck me for the first time that I think I mentioned, again, I'd heard this, I'd heard this so many times, I was quoting major authoritative sources, that depression is the most debilitating illness on the planet right now. And yet I think that's false. I'm gonna say something quite raw, but it's, kind, it's completely Buddhist. Depression is not an illness. Depression is a symptom of an illness. And the drugs treat the symptom and virtually never ever get to the cause and that's why for antidepressants and every other psychopharmaceutical drug, there's not even one that actually cures the mental disease because they're all treating the symptoms. And they're not looking, and they still have this, I'm sorry, I'm going to be harsh here, this moronic notion that all mental diseases are simply brain dysfunctions. And it's moronic because the evidence absolutely did not support that. But it really struck me, I found it very helpful. Does, depression is not a disease. In Buddhism, depression is not a mental affliction. Sadness is not a mental affliction. Anxiety is not a mental affliction. Where is it? It's not among the mental afflictions. It's a symptom of mental afflictions. So just to take drugs or get therapy to make the symptom go away is missing the point. But so I, I beg your pardon for misspeaking. 
not choosing my words well, but now I try to rectify that. What's up, Doc? <laughs> What's up is, the microphone's up. I think it's your turn. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't that question, though. Oh, that was, it was another it's one. But I answered one of them. So that <laughs> Actually. Okay, there's that one. You want me to answer those two together? Uh, yeah, here, here's yeah, the less human one. And you want me to cover that one? Um, you know who's the boss here. May I just see that? It's like sure, this there is was the another half to it. you're ready, you can just answer the second half. I really want to. Thank you. Okay. So here, in, I'm in the old age illness and dying, 60 years plus. Oh, I think I just found my crowd. <laughs> We're there. We have a rather large club, you know, the baby murmurs, we've arrived. Uh, the phase of life and just beginning to practice, what should I focus on and what direction should my practice take? Right for the core. There are more core practices and more peripheral practices. This is true. They're not all the same. And we've seen, you've probably seen the bumper sticker. The Dalai Lama said, kindness is my religion. See that one? It's pretty good. It's true. He did say that, say that. So if you focus on kindness, you'll never have a moment's regret. Oh, I spent too much time on kindness. <laughs> That'll never happen. And if you're cultivating a peace of mind so that when the pains of aging really start to hit, and the loss of loved ones, like my father married for 69 years, and then losing his life's partner. That was painful. And then finding he no longer drive, and finding his hearing is even worse and worse and worse. None of this is good news. But to then really turn inwards. Because if there's any time to turn away from reliance on hedonia, it's when you get old. <laughs> when you're young, it can look pretty good. But by the time you're getting older, 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus, in my father's case, 90 plus, Hedonia is pretty empty. There's not much you can enjoy, a good meal, a good book, but most of your friends are dead. And so turn to the essence. Kindness is the essence. Peace of mind, inner contentment. Find your refuge so that when you're finally, and maybe it's not so far away, who knows, maybe it's tonight for me, strokes can happen any time. But when you do find that you are dying, that you face it fearlessly, you face it with trust, with confidence, with a virtuous mind. And you can die well. You can die well. I could linger there. But you can die well. You can live well. <coughs> and you can rejoice in having found Dharma that speaks to your heart enriches your soul. You can die well. And what follows death can be truly splendid. You haven't started too late. That I say with total confidence. Was there anything more here? The, the issue of less, less human, which I said, I said I misspoke. 
I find this painful as a person facing the disease and terrified that in my unawareness I will degenerate more negative karma. Unawareness is a mental affliction, but being unaware does not generate negative karma simply by being unaware. Anger can arise in the mind, but you're simply aware of it and feel the affliction, the bite. Eva said it so poignantly. I've never in my life enjoyed being angry. On occasion, I may have felt it was justified, but I've never enjoyed it, not once. And apparently some people do, and I'm not going to refute them. Um, but simply being angry does not generate negative karma. Simply feeling self-centered does not generate negative It's like having the flu doesn't generate negative karma. Mm -hmm. It is an affliction. So simply having an affliction doesn't generate negative karma. Iba pretty much said everything in the last talk. But as soon as it kicks into an intention, I'm really upset and I want to retaliate. I want to bring out the knife. I'm feeling greedy and I want to act out of greed, selfishness, jealousy, and so forth. It's the intention is where, that's where the karma kicks in and that's where you're really storing seeds for the future life. But simply having a mental affliction, it's just, it's just afflictive. It's like having the flu. Your, your mind is now diseased. So you try to do damage control as Shantideva so brilliantly says, when you see that your mind is afflicted, there's something you can do. Don't do anything. Quarantine yourself. And wait until it passes, because mental afflictions don't come and stay for a year. They don't come and stay for all day. They come and stay for minutes. And sooner or later, you just get tired of you know, being greedy or jealous or arrogant. You just get tired. You get, you, your mind wanders. <laughs> you get distracted. <laughs> Good. And so wait until, like malaria, People get, I've never had it, but a friend of mine has. It, it's there, but then it becomes manifest, and then it becomes unmanifest. Well, we all have mental afflictions. I have all 84,000 of them, so I'm really kind of like, what, typhoid Mary? <laughs> I have 84,000. <000. laughs> <laughs> I couldn't carry it breath. But when you see that your, your malaria is active, that's not the time to do a lot of stuff. And when you see that the malaria of greed and hatred and delusion and so forth are active, that's the time to quarantine yourself and not make any decisions, don't arouse intentions and don't do anything until that bout subsides. You come to your senses and then you think, okay, that was really unjust, but now that my mind is calm again, now what shall I do? It's not an invitation to apathy, but it is an invitation to not act out of our mental afflictions. So don't be unhappy, too much of distress of your unawareness. You're in a very, you have a lot of company. I'll take your hand, I'm, I'm part of the unawareness team. Uh, and so there is no thought of a lucid death. This is another important point. I spoke of the, the tremendous benefit of being able to die lucidly, as there's a great benefit in dreaming lucidly. If you're very lucid, nothing in the dream can harm you. And if you pass through the portals of death lucidly, and you're in the bardo, that transition before you take your next embodiment, if you can be lucid in the bardo, it's a tremendous boon. Very much like being lucid in the dream. And being totally confused and reifying everything in the bardo doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a bad rebirth or things are going to turn out badly. And it all comes back to ethics. And that if you can't die lucidly, well, join the club. Most people don't. If you're not in the bardo lucidly, well, don't, don't get too worried. Most people aren't. But whether you're a Buddhist or non-Buddhist, whether you're an atheist, materialist, or orthodox Jew, whatever you are, what most counts in terms of how things play out as we sow, so shall we reap, is 
how have we dealt with reality, with violence and lack of benevolence, or nonviolence and benevolence? And the Pope has said something of this in regard as a rather authoritative Christian, and it's standard Buddhism. What determines the nature of your bardo and what will follow is above all your actions and your intentions, whatever your belief system. Beliefs are not irrelevant. Some people kind of poo-poo them. That is not intelligent. Beliefs are enormously important. But what really is the sowing of the seeds of the field is our actions. And so as we approach death, and we all are from the moment of conception, if we can do our utmost, 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 our best and our utmost, not our utmost, uh, to just avoid violence. I mean, Eva couldn't even say the words because her heart is too tender. You know, you have to work on that. <laughs> but she couldn't say the words that the opposite of loving kindness is wishing for a person not to find happiness in its causes. And the opposite of compassion is wishing for a person to find suffering and its causes. Well, that's not just for villains of the world. That's not just for the despots and the terrible people of the world. Does that ever come up? Where we look on a person, we just find that person despicable. You don't deserve happiness. I don't want you to have happiness. That's ill will. And any inclination at all of wishing for another person to have suffering and to cause their suffering, especially when it kicks into an intention, that's what will pull us down. So barring any worldview, I'm not here to evangelize worldviews. Let's follow the facts. Let's follow the evidence and use our reasoning and draw our best conclusions. And that's why I've gotten where I am right now. I've never made a leap of faith in my life. I just don't know how. But I know how to use my intelligence as well as I can, follow the evidence, and that's where led me to the worldview I have right now. And so, in this regard, um, one can die with confidence. And it doesn't, you don't, to die with confidence, it doesn't mean that you've never done anything wrong or even deplorable. But when you have, you recognize it as such. You try to make amends. If you can apologize, you apologize. And then you do the opposite and you don't replicate it. And then you can burn the seeds. This is something to do before we die. When we know that we've done things that, in our own minds, according to our own standards, that was really wrong, that was deplorable, that was awful. How could I have done such a thing? Good to recognize. That's a virtue to recognize that. And to feel remorse. I wish I hadn't done that. How, what got into me? Oh, I wish I had not done that. That's virtuous. It doesn't feel good at all. It's virtuous. But I shall do the opposite. And I should do the op. If I were cruel, I will be compassionate. I can do that. And I will not do that again. Then you can purify it lock, stock, and barrel. You can burn the seeds of the karma. And they'll never ripen. And that's what we can do before we die. So don't carry that burden to death. Neutralize it. Antidote it. Neutralize it. And then die with confidence. Die with your refuge. Find your refuge. Take refuge. And don't worry if you can't be lucid. No big deal. No big deal. It's nice if you got it. If you don't, no problem. You have a virtuous life. Avoid non-virtue. Devote yourself to a bounty of virtue. Subdue your mind. That's the teaching of the Buddha. That's enough. <laughs> now it's your turn. <clears throat> and I will just add one more thought to, to that duo of questions around uh, facing the death process, which, of course, as Alan said, we're all facing equally, regardless of age, regardless of health. We all could die today. And I will say that <coughs> solitary retreat in particular, extended solitary retreat, 
um, is an opportunity to face death in, a, in virtual circumstances because one is cutting off so many of the factors that we think of as forming our, our identity from, from the outside. Uh, so I'll say that I've had the opportunity, I think, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, to face death when the body's healthy. And that's an immense privilege, actually, to, to be able to simulate that process. Of course, there are practices where one can imagine it, but it's not the same. When one's life circumstances, when one has deliberately changed one life, one's life circumstances in such a way um, that one puts its, yeah, the voluntary solitary confinement. Um, I'll say this. It's back to refuge. And what is our deepest refuge? Because when one can form, trust, I don't quite want to use the word establish, but I guess it's, it's okay, establish a relationship with one's ultimate refuge, whether in the form of the Buddha, the enlightened one, God, Christ, a guru, a spiritual friend. There are many mental images but if one understands each of their ultimate nature, it can take one to the ground. And so what I'm trying to express is for each of us, it's so individual, what the object of faith is, what it is that will inspire our deepest existential trust. And this comes right back to the first exhalation in a session of shamatha, the existential trust. And by practicing that, practicing shamatha, even if we think our concentration is lousy, and it's very common for that word to come up, so it's okay to just face it. Okay, my concentration is lousy. Maybe there's a lot of dullness. Maybe there's a lot of excitation. But just practicing it, even if it seems it's going nowhere, is an opportunity to bring us ourselves back to our highest, purest intention and faith in a refuge, an ultimate refuge. And frankly, when the mind is breaking down and there is no hope of lucidity in the death process, uh, if the last thought we have is entrusting ourselves to the highest goodness there is, how could, how could it fail? So that's just a PS to, to your words. Um, and then this is related uh, to the death process and passing on as well in terms of where memories are stored. Um, it's, it, the, the question is, is formulated in a complex way and I just want to take sort of the mm, distilled form of it, whether memories are stored in physical or uh, conscious form. And in the Vajrayana teachings of Buddhism, uh, in particular Kala Chakra, right, there is the idea that, well, all, all forms of Vajrayana accept that the very subtle mind has a very subtle physical correlate. Very subtle. This is like no, no scientific instrument could detect this. This may be more at what we think of as the level of, of vibration. Um, or in 
Kashmir Shaivism, the, the, the sound, Shabda, um, as a constitutive of, of reality. So this very, very subtle vibration, it's actually called lung, or, or a kind of energy wind, um, which runs in tandem with the very subtle mind, which is of the nature of primordial consciousness or pristine awareness. And then all the more so, there is a subtle physical correlate to the substrate and the substrate consciousness. So it's not that one is ever completely disembodied, as in has no physical correlate. Uh, and this debate comes up even in the formless realm where beings take a rebirth and have no physical body, they still have the very subtle continuum of energy. Um, I'll leave it to a debate I don't, don't know about whether there's a, a subtle as opposed to a very subtle continuum of, of prana, but there probably is. Um, the point being that muscle memory from this life, of course that will break down. <laughs> muscle I was a ballet dancer, so I know a lot about muscle, muscle memory. There are many ballets that I couldn't possibly reconstruct just on the basis of muscle memory now, because my mind has forgotten. And that's just in the course of 15, 20 years. So of course when the body breaks down, the brain breaks down, we lose our explicit human memories things that are very embedded in, in the body, like muscle memory, not so important. It will break down. So the, the way that memory is stored from lifetime to lifetime is, is quite different from what we think of as memory right now. And I think that's enough uh, that's pertinent to that question now. But it's a deep question. Uh, shall I pass back to you? And I shall return to okay. um, Christianity. Oh, that's good. So here's a question, and that is, why don't those who achieve shamatha and get powers, or cities use them in the world in a highly visible way? Uh, the answer is I don't know, so let's say that one first. But I can say this with a lot of confidence. Uh, relatively speaking now, with the, oh, something like 95% decimation of Buddhism in Tibet, they knocked out almost all the monasteries and burned many of the books, and now it's still very, very oppressive and highly controlled because the Chinese Communist government simply brooks no competition at all. And so consider that was the first thing that happened. Uh, there's still a lot of Buddhism there, but of course Bhutan was never touched, Nepal not touched, India, the refugees, many of them came there. But what is quite clear is nowadays in this 21st century, even the late 20th century, there are really, there's good reason to believe, and not just a subjective impression, there's good reason to believe, at least in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, not many yogis have achieved cities. Not many, not in Tibet or not outside, but some have. And I have witnessed on a couple of occasions where I've seen cities. I've seen them myself. I know people who've seen them, and people I utterly respect and have, them, have no doubt about their veracity. But nobody's gone to, to use, use a nice kind of paradigm, nobody's gone to MIT under controlled experimentation and demonstrated a city. How come? If they have them, you know, if you got it, why not flaunt it? <laughs> and but consider the country we're living in. What would the CIA do if they found somebody had cities? Would they think, oh, let's, let's all develop bodhicitta for the sake of all sentient beings? <laughs> would that be part of, become part of the training of all the CIA agents that we will show equal love for the Soviets and the Chinese and the North Koreans? Because after all, we're so inspired by the Buddhists that we're all going to be, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so power is power, and power is neither, neither, neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. The power of a laser, the power of a bomb. A bomb can be used to, to 
drill a hole through a mountain so you can create a bridge so people can get food. So technology is not good or evil, but it is power. And there are cities, and I have absolutely no doubt that they do, do exist. They've been demonstrated many, many times in the Buddhist and many other traditions. But it's power, and we're living in an overwhelmingly materialistic society. And if people show power, the first people coming to the trough will people who simply want that power, and they say the heck with the other window dressing of things like ethics and motivation and wisdom. We don't know. We, we just want to get the edge over, the, over our adversaries. So 50 years ago, I think there were more people with cities. I think there's good evidence for that. In Tibet, most of my, almost all my teachers were trained in Tibet, lived in Tibet. So they were there in the old days. And display of cities was not at all uncommon. Some of my teachers witnessed some really quite flamboyant ones. But it would always be understood in context there that these cities are displayed by bodhisattvas in order to inspire people along the path, right? And so should they, would it be good if people develop cities? Definitely, yes. It's one of your bodhisattva vows. If you take bodhisattva vows, one of them is you should try to develop these, not as a power trip, but just like a doctor should develop all the skills to be a doctor, an engineer should develop better technology to heal the, the problems of the world. Generally, with the right motivation in the context of ethics and guided by wisdom, developing cities is a wonderful thing. But it must be guided by wisdom, rooted in ethics, and have a, a magnificent motivation behind it. So we are creating the center. We will succeed because we're just not going to give up until we do, whether it takes one year, it takes 20 years, whether it's during my lifetime or it's after I'm dead. We, we're gonna see, we will continue until we succeed at the center in Tuscany. And we will simply continue until we succeed, leading people with the help of every best person we can, including a Bhutanese yogi I know who's completely achieved shamatha and had 16 years of retreat on top of it. He's agreed to come. One of the sum most sublime practitioners I've ever met in my life is portrayed right just on the far side of this individual, Kandala. <laughs> and she is an unbelievably pure being. And she agreed to come to the center and teach. So these are two spectacular people. I bow at their feet. They're both my lamas. And then we have Eva, we have Glenn Svensson, we have Doug Wienhoff, all very experienced teachers. I pledge to be there at least six months a year, and we're going to do everything we possibly can to help people, nurture people, guide people, inspire people to proceed along this path of shamatha and achieve it, move on to Vipassana and achieve it, recognize their own pristine awareness, realize that, enter the path, and then do whatever you like. <laughs> Vajrayana, Vajrayagini, Gwesamasha, Dzokshya, Mahamudra, but you're now set to actually look at the real possibility of achieving enlightenment in one lifetime. And what will come together with that, without going out of our way to achieve this city or that city, cities will come. They come by themselves. But everything we're doing there, and will be doing, is going to be absolutely embedded in ethics. No ethics, I stop. I have no interest in doing anything further in motivation and and we'll work with scientists. But I have come to the conclusion that, to my mind, it's perfectly clear there's a continuity of consciousness. I don't know that anything can persuade me otherwise at this point. In which case, I just think it's true, and it's not a Buddhist truth, it's just true. If it's true, then everybody should know. We all know that anybody who's interested, you know that, mood, that Jupiter has moons, you know the Earth goes around the sun, et cetera, et cetera. We, this is the wonder of scientific knowledge that it becomes public. Even though we don't know why it's true, we know the scientific community has credibility and integrity. And when they say that there are planets around other stars, I've not seen the compelling evidence, but by cracking, I believe them. You know, They've earned my trust. 
But you know what else is true in my trust? The Dalai Lama, Buddha, Nagarjuna, Chantakirti, Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava, they've earned my trust at even more deep, deeper trust because they, they're not pursuing hedonic ends and they're not driven by ego. And many scientists are because they're human beings. And so I have that, same, that kind of trust. But these things, if they're true, they should be public. If the human spirit has the ability to develop cities, paranormal abilities, extrasensory perception, then these are just facts. Everybody should know about it and know that they can be tremendously meaningful if they're motivated by compassion. And so they do need to be made public. I think we are facing such dire, catastrophic crises in the modern world that we need existential shock therapy. It's not going to be legislation. It's not going to be more scientific knowledge because the people in power are ignoring it anyway. Many of them, not just one, many are ignoring it, soft peddling it, not doing even remotely enough because we burned more carbon fuel last year than we did in a preceding year. And that's with the Paris Accord and all of that jazz. So if we're going to turn this around, it has to be very deep. It has to go just so deep that it just revolutionizes our notion of what it is to be a human being, a sentient being, and what's the meaning of life. And it's not converting people to this religion or that religion. It's got to go deeper than that. And so, yeah, we're gonna, we have to succeed because as one of my friends who's working very strongly, failure is not an option. It's just not an option. We have to do our very best to turn this around for the sake of all sentient beings, and not only us humans, who are a tiny fraction of the 12 billion, billion animals on the planet. Only 7.8. I, I wasn't in repeat, so I know the number. <laughs> so will, could some of the knowledge coming out, could that be misused? Of course. Just look, look, look what some Christians have done with Jesus is teaching. Turned it into, you know, fodder for religious wars. But in, Buddhism isn't innocent. There have been religious wars in Buddhism. And there have been political wars about communism. has a good idea, a good heart, but then they turn it into wars. You name it. Somebody's going to misuse it. You can't control that. What you can control is your own motivation and offering your very best. But we need to do something really powerful to turn this around. It's getting too late. And if we get much later, then it'll be too late. And I think there was a corollary here. Oh, yeah, there it is. If, if we... If we're able to simply dem demonstrate, I won't say quite say prove reincarnation. I have a lot of scientific training, and I know a lot of really good scientists. They hardly ever would use the word prove anymore, because there's always possibility of something later, but compelling evidence that displays something beyond all reasonable doubt. Like within you know ordinary mechanics, the inverse square law of gravity is pretty solid. You know, mm. to doubt that, apart from you know near the speed of light and so forth, uh, okay, it's beyond all reasonable doubt. If the, con the reality of reincarnation, continuity of consciousness, were dem demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt, most people still won't believe it. Because <laughs> 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 materialists are going to stick by their gun. They say, oh, no, I'm, I'm sure there's something wrong with that. And religious fundamentalists say, oh, no, that's not part of our belief. We know what God said. He didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but for people who are open-minded, it will be compelling. And I'm utterly persuaded that won't be enough. It won't be enough. It has to be something deeper than that. It can't be a scientific experiment done in Italy. It's got to be something that rocks. Rocks. And it can't be one person. We'll probably kill, kill, kill him or her anyway. We don't, let him get, we don't let him get away with it, right? And so, to my mind, it has to be many people tapping into the deepest reality, embodying the deepest reality. And there need to be Buddhist and Christian and humanists and Jews and Sufis and Taoists. There have to be thousands of people really waking up to reality and inspiring everybody around them. 
It can't be one, and it can't be one religion. It can't be one race or one culture. It's got to be deeper than that. And this, from my perspective, Dzogchen provides a path there that we already know. I'm sorry, I'm going on here. But in the, in the Tibet, there was the Burn tradition, which is the indigenous, more shamanic, shamanic tradition before Buddhism. They embraced Dzogchen lock, stock, and barrel. And they just incorporated it into their own worldview. And they didn't become Buddhist. And there's very clear evidence that over the last thousand years, there have been bumbos achieving rainbow body. And they never converted to Buddhism. Well, if the bumbos can, why can't the Christians? Maybe one already did. I think his name was uh, Jesus. <laughs> you know? And then there's evidence in Taiwan that there were that, that there were Taoists who achieved rainbow body. And there's evidence that in the south of India, Tabul Nadu, there were Hindus who achieved rainbow body. Well, let's have more. If it's true, let it be public. And if there are cities that come out of your profound insight in the very nature of reality, a pristine awareness, then let a hundred people and a thousand and ten thousand. I'm just thinking large because no small solution is going to be enough. And so will some people misuse it? Yeah. You can say today's a really nice day and somebody can misuse that too. <laughs> and then in terms of if it were proven beyond all reasonable doubt, if you've watched the movie, which I saw, Discovery with Robert Redford, The Discovery, where they showed, demonstrated evidence that consciousness continues, then might uh, a lot of people choose suicide if they didn't understand Buddhism, karma, and so forth and so on. Well, people respond to all kinds of things with suicide. There's no controlling that. But if people are at all sensible, you want to terminate this life? Because people are committing suicide without believing reincarnation. And the vast majority think, well, that means the lights will be out and all my problems will be over. They're in for a terrible shock. And what's your confidence? Whatever your situation is, like the wonderful Paul, who had, um, was it Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, the, the, the comedian? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, Robin uh, Williams? Robin Williams, mm. yeah, Rob, Robin Williams. Brilliant, I mean, truly brilliant comedian. And then he killed himself because he was a, an irreversible disease. I have no judgment on it. It's not for me to judge anybody at all. But I strongly suspect he thought if he killed himself, then his problems are over. And so without re leaving reincarnation, people still kill themselves. And by and large, because they think it's going to turn out better than what they have now. If a person believes in reincarnation and you kill yourself, exactly why do you think it's going to be better if you throw away this life? Exactly what are the grounds for this? Because this is an irreversible. You can't say, whoops, and get your body back. So it's an irreversible decision. And if you have great confidence that it's going to be better than this, well then, okay, you have the freedom to kill yourself. But you might really want to think twice. If this is a life in which you have a human mind, that could actually fathom the nature of reality and develop compassion and so forth, what do you think you're going to get next time? And why do you think it's going to get better? So I think that was about a three-minute talk. That might be enough. Don't be so fast there, because you're a human being, even if you're not fully functioning. So you have Alzheimer's, but not yet that set in. You have Parkinson's, but you're still, use it. Use it while you've got it. Who can say, will I, be, will I have Alzheimer's 20 years? Could be. How can I tell? But not yet. And so I'm going to use it until it's gone. Your turn. And again, I'll just add on that. Um, if the movement of many people from many traditions practicing seriously around the world is the means by which 
the scientific and maybe the community at large start to take reincarnation seriously as a fact, uh, I pray that with that will go the knowledge of the great spiritual traditions that is being embodied by the practitioners who are able to demonstrate it. You see what I'm saying? It's not isolated. And so uh, and this does weave right into the next two questions that I want to answer together regarding Christianity. Um, as many of you know, that's been my own dual path, and I'm deeply committed to not simply having the Christian center over here and the Buddhist center over here, but the ongoing dialogue at the depths of worldview, how is it, and I for myself can start with these two traditions in particular. I can't continue to say, and this one, and this one, and this one. For me, it's very specific, Christianity and Buddhism. At what level can f issues of philosophical worldview be so deeply integrated, the dialogue so sophisticated, that things that may have seemed like irreconcilable contra uh, contradictions, um, at least for the last 150 years of sincere encounter between um, Buddhism and Christianity on the world scene, could be transcended maybe in a new uh, understanding of each that, from a Buddhist perspective, integrates the reality of Christ as Bodhisattva, as Buddha, in the panoply of the Mahayana revelations, and vice versa, that Buddhism is understood to be a genuine revelation of the second person of the Holy Trinity as the word of God manifest as the Buddha Shakyamuni and the entire um, wealth of revelations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Dharma. So, a uh, beautiful question here about um, can I speak to the biblical verse attributed to Jesus? And I appreciate that wording because, especially in the Gospel of John, um, well, all the Gospels, the process from the time of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through the evolution of the telling of the stories into written Gospels, both the Synoptics and the Gospel of John, very complex process. Um, and understanding that in no way denigrates the authenticity of the transmission that comes through the Gospels. But if we naively think that everything in the Gospels is exactly what Jesus said, that can lead to a lot of problems too. And my mother in particular, she's a theologian and a historian of mysticism, um, has, has been looking at this very deeply recently. And once one goes into the languages, you realize, oh, this is complex. But still, the biblical verse attributed to Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and this verse is saying, I find this hard to reconcile with um, an embracing of Buddhism um, that's come about for this person. But to address it more broadly, this has been a huge path question for me in my life. And I was already studying Buddhism very deeply at a certain point that it was like I read the whole Gospel of John all over again. And I was trying to hear it. I deliberately trying, but it also was coming in Buddhist terms, just from beginning to end. What if this is a revealer of Buddhism who is speaking the Gospel of John, who is the first person of Jesus in the Gospel of John? And so 
if one could see the Jesus who says I am, and it's the existential I am of the God of the Old Testament, I am who am, the ground of being. Who is the me to whom he refers when he says except through me? And the I am statements in the Gospel of John are all to be interpreted, and again, biblical scholars do agree on this, at the existential level. He is echoing the I am of Yahweh in the revelation to Moses in the burning bush. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, if one reified the human Jesus, who, according to Orthodox Christian belief, is manifest fully human, fully divine. If one reified the I am down to the individuality of the human being, Christian theology has worked very, very hard with maintaining the balance of that contradiction. Fully human, fully divine, that's not possible. But there's a paradox there that Orthodox theology has worked very hard to maintain. But if in turn that is reified as, well, he means me, a life of 30 years and a resurrection of eternity, but not anybody else. That doesn't work in Christian terms either. Because in Christian terms, as I indicated, was that? Yeah, I think I did indicate yesterday. The call to embody, to be divinized through Jesus, means that every person who embraces Jesus as Lord is called to become one who will be resurrected in glory as Jesus is. Uh, so the way I hear that as a Christian and as a Buddhist, I am the doorway to Buddhahood, to enlightenment. I am the truth, the Dharma, the root is the same, ter, truth, Dharma. I am the truth. I am the life of the church, which is associated with the Holy Spirit. And this is also the Sangha, the life of a community of those who are realized and guide us forward on the pathway to enlightenment. So I am the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. No one comes to the Father, the ground of reality, pristine awareness, ultimate reality except through all that I am, which is the totality of enlightenment, the totality of eternal life, the totality of truth, the totality of path. The way is the path, Marga. So you see how vast a truth like this is. This is the statement of the guru to the disciples, saying, don't look at this individual. Look at everything that flows. And so I, I gave this talk actually last month in Sydney called Christ as Guru. Um, and that is available online. Actually, if you just search even Atanya Christ as Guru right now, it probably can take you to the contemporary website. And if anyone's interested in that talk, um, I tried to go into this in even greater depth. Uh, but I hope that is just a seed. And so another question was about um, what teachings of mystical Christianity would I recommend? Um, hesychasm is probably the, the broadest and most specific word 
um, H-E-S-Y-C-H-A-S-M. It's a Greek, based on the Greek word. Hezekiah actually means stillness, but I think in a Christian context, it's much more than simply shamatha. It's the whole path to realization, to union with the divine and divinization. So hezekasm, you can find a lot on it, uh, mostly in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but the Western Catholic tradition has actually taken a deeply renewed interest in um, the masters of the Hezekiah tradition. Oh, another word, philokalia, P-H-I-L-O-K-A-L-I-A. The philokalia is published in English, very good translation in five volumes, and this is the, it's the distillation of the tracts, of the Desert Fathers, the Greek Fathers, and then the Byzantine Fathers through Russia all the way to, I think, the 19th century. So the teachings are extraordinary, what you can find there. But I would say not to be used in isolation. If one is not embedded in, in a Christian practice of the sacraments, um, then it, it is incomplete from its own perspective. And if one's trying to use it as supplement to Buddhist teachings, one needs to know a lot about Christianity in order for it to make sense. So that's an answer to a question that more than one person may have. But with the caveat, look deeply into the whole of the Christian path in order for those teachings to make sense. We're at 5 o'clock. One word on, on this very sophisticated question about loving kindness towards those who might want to really seriously hurt us. It doesn't mean not to be wise. It's what we feel in our hearts. One can lock one's doors. One can take all precautions. One can be wise in the world in all the, and again, Jesus says, be wise as foxes. We can be very, very wise in the world without feeling animosity towards anybody. I think that's, that's the most succinct answer I can give to that. Any tension in the face during meditation? Relax. <laughs> Voila. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I've been asked to um, oh, yeah. recite the closing, closing prayers, and we will start with the mandala again, and then dedication and the seven-line prayer. For those of you who don't know, the seven-line prayer is an invocation specifically to Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, and symbolically, an invocation of the entire Dzogchen lineage, the teachings of the Great Perfection. Uh, and so, in these three prayers respectively, we'll only do each once. The mandala, imagine your perfect world. 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, how could this earth evolve where all our problems are purified, people are reaching enlightenment, Imagine your perfect world. And then dedicate, as we did yesterday, sending the energy of the virtue. This is true rejoicing in the virtue we have done together this weekend. Uh, and dedicating, you actually have power in your heart. Send it away as a prayer that these things may come to pass. And then finally calling upon all the realized masters who have reached stable, <coughs> unwavering realization of the nature of reality uh, and calling them to bless us and carry us forward in our own path, whatever that may be. Oh.
Yeah. 